Previously on Idle Thumbs. This is the Idle Thumbs Conf Grenade for GDC 2011. Nideo Hog. Nideo Hog. Nideo. Nideo game. We're joined by Nick Brecken, who is Nid Brecken. Nid Brecken. Brecken. What? Why is Will Wright lecturing everyone on the defects of Soviet rocketry? I'm sure it's Peter Molyneux. What are they going to do? What is happening right now? What is this? So you guys should stay tuned to the next exciting episode of Idle Thumbs when we tell you how Phaedrus was almost in the Jurassic Park game. <laughs> it's March 13th, 2012. This is the Idle Thumbs GDC 2012 Conf Grenade number two. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. And I'm Sean Vanneman. And we have a bunch of uh, really noisy GDC content for you. Uh, in a little bit, we will have four or five... Uh, short interviews with various game developers who uh, Steve and I, and in one case, Steve and Nick and I, found while we were uh, walking around GDC. So we'll have this for you a little later. Um, and hopefully they sound okay. And now it's us. Hi there. To talk about other GDC stuff. Hello. How was GDC, Chris? Yeah. Um, it was good. It <laughs> I, was... Heard, I heard you were interviewing people. Yes. Um, it was a pretty relaxing GDC for me. Uh, I kind of deliberately didn't take it. Didn't overschedule myself, or uh, you know, is, I didn't even I didn't even look like at the first GDC in a billion years that you've gone to, not as press of some level of repute. Well, no, I wasn't press last year. I was with Irrational. Oh right. Well, never mind. I lied. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I didn't even look at the schedules ahead of time. Actually, or the you know the sessions. I just showed up every day and checked. I wanted to wanted what I wanted to see. And Nick Brecken was there. Oh, that's so good. So I get to hang out with him. Was there anything super notable? From a um, talk standpoint? Yeah, I actually... There's always I, one where you're like, oh man, that was the one. You know, I would say this year there was less of that. You know, like in a lot of GDCs, th that this kind year of there ripples. wasn't one. <laughs> well, what I mean is that in a lot of GDCs, you hear about the like the really big talks that kind of buzz around the mm -hmm. halls and they kind of ripple around. And there wasn't... It didn't feel like there was as much of that this year. It might have been that since I was taking it a little more low-key, I just wasn't as tuned into that stuff. But it felt like a less... Kind of explosive uh, GDC in that respect. You didn't but, accidentally notice the overarching theme of GDC, right? This year, yeah, like exactly. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really perceive that as much. But there were some talks I really liked. I did like um, Brendan's talk at Adam Zombie Smasher, which we talked about before. I really mm -hmm. liked. Um, and also, my other my other favorite was probably uh, Greg Kasavin's talk mm -hmm. on atmosphere. Um, he uh, Greg Kasavin of Supergiant Games, who made Bastion. Um, it was a really good talk. He like a lot of uh, GDC talks about. Um, kind of descriptive game terms. A lot of what he tried to do was to formalize what atmosphere means, as opposed to just talking vaguely about things like immersion and atmosphere and and uh, and stuff like that. The he, usual. Oh, we all know what this means. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He really tried to dig deep into um, what we mean when we say atmosphere in games and why it's important and how it can be achieved. And I thought it was. Just, Really, really great because ba Bastion definitely had a lot of it, um, and a lot of what it a lot of what it came down to for him was atmosphere is about uh, it's essentially how the theme of a game is expressed. So it's atmosphere is what's expressed by what the game is actually about, not just the plot, but its themes and uh, its kind of overarching um, coherency. And it's really important to get strong atmosphere across in your games to make sure that everything has a really strong internal consistency. You know, you want you want to feel like the world is really um, is 
ties itself together behind the scenes. And he's, you know, he said he wrote probably just as much, if not more, uh, text about about the characters and about the world and about what had happened um, and the events leading up to the game and so on um, as as actually shipped in the game. Like there's tons of tons and tons of material that he wrote and he considered that never even made it into the game. And what how that manifests itself is in all of those small little intangible details that are present in the world. And that's what forms the atmosphere. But everyone who's working on the game has that exactly. huge working text to right. to fill in or yeah. to guide them, I guess. And he went he went into a lot of detail about all, all, all the different aspects of this. And he brought up dozens of, of other uh, games from like the last 20 years, which I thought was really cool. And he made the, the point that I agree with that atmosphere is not really at all a function of visual fidelity or, uh, you know, technical mastery. Um, some of the games that he referred to were like the original Wing Commander and Ultima Four, and games that are very crude by by modern standards, but have a lot of those qualities that give them really strong atmosphere. And one one of the reasons I liked his talk so much is because I personally feel that atmosphere is the most important means by which games can convey meaning. Like I, in general, I think most game the actual plot of most games is is pretty poor and most games, the settings are either pretty generic or pretty uninteresting, and a lot of the dialogue is often terrible, but one of the things games can, can can really, really excel at is great atmosphere, because you're in a world and because you're actually exploring uh, yourself and because uh, you're self-pacing a lot of the time in a game. Um, I feel like atmosphere is the thing that persists. You know, like, it's really easy to break pacing and to make conversations absurd and to really just screw up mechanics. I mean, that's a lot of the stuff we talk about on Idle Thumbs right. is the sort of weird implied stories that come out of kind of subverting what the game is trying to do. But I think the aspect of games that can really maintain its integrity even in the face of that is its atmosphere. Um, and Is that a point he made or is it just something no, that no, that's just something. Together? No, that's just something that, that... That's something that I think and is one of the reasons I like his talk is because right. um, it's one of the reasons I think atmosphere is so important. Um Anyway, uh, don't want to dominate the conversation with that one talk, but uh, I really liked it. And um, if you, he may put up his slides or something later. Mm -hmm. A lot of times speakers do that. So he will. If <laughs> if he does, you should. Which we're confirming that he will on this podcast. Okay, that's good. Assuming he listens to this and is guilted <laughs> into it because of this, that's um, yeah, there's an ulterior motive. Yeah. And then the other the other talk that kind of sticks in my mind is the. Um, I don't have as much to say about this because it was more of one of those just kind of fun, fun talks. But it was uh, Tim Kaine's postmortem on the original Fallout, and it was oh, just yeah, I heard you talk it was about yeah. It, it, there there weren't as many kind of grand points made. It was just a lot of really interesting information, including some just insane shit, like the fact that when they were trying to get Windows ninety five certification for their game, so they could put the little Windows, Windows ninety five yeah. sticker on the box, um, they failed certification because the game worked on Windows NT. Uh, and <laughs> what? In the, yeah, in the Windows ninety five uh, certification, games must um, work obviously completely fine on Windows ninety five, but must fail gracefully on Windows NT because they're supposed to like try and get you yeah. to pony up the extra exactly. money for ninety five. And so I'm sure they want gamers to get one ninety five and not the the hardcore OS. Exactly. Or whatever. Oh, and man. so they went back and they just put in a simple like if then check in their installer that if the user is running Windows NT, then just crash installer. And Microsoft then gave them their certification. And what, that, <laughs> what that basically meant is that for the for the, all of the rest of time, because 
Starting with what, like Windows 2000? It was all based on NT. Yep. Um, so it just basically meant Fallout 1 was broken forever. Uh, good. <laughs> yep. That's pretty amazing. Yep. So uh, good for that. There, there was a lot of really interesting stuff. I mean, that was a one of those sort of goofy, weird, uh, just flukes of history. But um, there's a lot of just interesting points made. And it was one of those talks that reminds you how much game development has changed since 1997, but also how many aspects have not changed at all. I mean, it was really interesting hearing him talk about all of the just onerous ways the marketing department tried to kind of assert itself onto the development of the game in just really, you know, like Diablo comes out, and then as soon as Diablo's out, it's like, oh, man, this is this is kind of looks like our game, but it's a real-time uh, multiplayer online uh, action RPG. We should make our game like that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Fallout is a single-player turn-based, you know, right. like... And they apparently wasted just months and tons of money doing feasibility tests to see if to see what would be required to turn the game into a game like Diablo. Um, and even though they didn't actually end up doing that, uh, they had to spend a bunch of time and money to determine that it was not worth doing. Which is the kind of thing that says, well, of course yeah. not. That wasn't that wasn't the game you're making ever. Why? That why? still happens <laughs> all the time. Yep, that's real still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that's that happens. True. We played eighteen player Joust. That yeah, was that our was one good. GDC experience. Yeah, the only thing that, that we, we ended up doing at GDC was going to the Wild Rumpus Venus Patrol party, which was actually really good. It was really good. Yeah, I'm always, I always yeah. tiptoe. Wild in. Rumpus Venus Patrol and One Life Left and One Life Left yeah. party. Sorry, sorry, One Life Left. That's fine. No, I, I always tiptoe into indie game GDC parties because they can go one of two ways but this one was really good it was really great it was in a big open yeah, space in the mission and they had a, a, a Proteus hangout room they yeah. had 18 player joust they had a mega gurp mega gurp mat which is awesome have we talked about mega gurp we'll walk through all of these I, okay. I think we have I think we've talked about the various like yeah. Bennett Foddy Doug Wilson crossovers yeah. Yeah. there were a couple games that we didn't really hang out in front of you played I don't remember the name of the game with the pedal that you played Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember the name of it either because the name of the game was like obscured often by the interface. But mm -hmm. it was this. It was this game where you. It sort of just has a randomly generated kind of craggy landscape, yeah. um, and it's just two colors. So ground is black and sky is white, and each player has controls one colored dot out of five colored dots, um, and each player the sole input is a foot pedal that is either depressed or not, and. It just it proceeds by just the uh, the little dots going in a parabola-like pattern across the map, and you have to hold down the pedal at while underground, like while your dot passes underground, and then release it as it comes back above ground. And the more accurately you can do that, uh, the more momentum you'll gain. So it's so, kind of like Tiny Wings. Yeah, it's like Tiny Wings with a pedal, sort of. I don't know if you play Tiny no, Wings. I oh, it's a really great game. It's an iOS game where you're yeah. a bird who swoops, swoops around, but you sort of can tuck in your wings to okay. get to get to make yeah, your arc so more extreme. It sounds like that, yeah. but then there's yeah. a there's a sort of prescribed um, like cutoff where you suffer if you do the wrong thing, depending right. on whether you're mm -hmm. over or above ground. And so it feels, and maybe Tiny Wings is like this too. But the I I basically ended up winning pretty much every game of that I played, and it felt like a lot of it was because. I was able to get into the rhythm of it. Like it felt mm -hmm. very much about rhythm, even mm -hmm. though it's not sort of a traditional rhythm game. It's not linked up to music or anything. But right. you get into that. You're gonna sort of get the, the, the nature of going. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was really it was cool. It was a nice, uh, elegant, simple little game. The other thing right next to that was Pole Riders, which <laughs> is Oh my gosh. Oh. So I think uh, actually at last year's GDC Conf Grenade we talked about Nidhog, which is the yeah. 
the versus sword fighting game. It's still not been released. Yeah, Nidhogg not being released is out of control. But uh, Pole Riders actually is released, and you can play it online on uh, the developer's website. Foddy.net. Yeah. F-O-D-D-Y.net. Um, it's another versus game, kind of like Nidhogg, where it, or like a fighting game, I guess. But everyone, the both players have like... 20 foot high uh like pole vaulting poles yeah yeah and it's a game that has like very like it's 2d and flat and very simple graphics but the th- everything that's in the game visually is very specific it's... and all contributes to the goal of the game so there's sort of like two castles at each end mm-hmm. and then you each play as a guy in sort of like gym shorts and a tank top with a pole vaulting pole and then there's a, there's a, there's the a kickball and a clothesline between yeah. you running, running across. Yeah. It's like a kettlebell on a clothesline, and you're trying to just get the ball to one castle or the yeah, other. It's very good. It's very strange. Yeah, so but you, it seems you, it feels you can like hit the ball yeah. with your with your pole, or you can like you can pull, pull yourself into the air and then kick it. Yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of different ways you can interact with, with the pole and the ball. Also, you can poke character. the other guy with the pole, and uh, yeah. you know it's um it's it was I didn't actually get to play it at the party, but I went and played it afterwards. But at the party. It was, it's, it's a amazingly good party game, apparently. It really is, like, yeah. You find yourself cheering for complete strangers just because mm-hmm. you yeah. get into, there are people getting into these standoffs trying to move the ball mm-hmm. a quarter of an inch in which to score. Right, and then one person does a goal. Nid, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Nidhogg works in a similar way, Ugh, but yeah. people can't play that game, which is infuriating. Yeah. Just the weird, it's, it's, there's enough. There's like micro-conflicts. Yeah, there's end. enough. Yeah. yeah. Sort of colliding systems inside of that that are being controlled by two different people that and, and just like, weird upsets happen and people go crazy. And like Nidhogg, it's uh, it's very much about a kind of long term push to the left or right. Like right, in Nidhogg, yeah. you're very unlikely to win by just you know in Nidhogg you play by successively pushing your opponent back one screen at a time, and it's very unlikely unless you're really unevenly matched that you will win by just. Right. Killing him at every There's almost never a straight left to right push. Exactly. Someone gains right. the upper hand for a while, and then right. the tables turn again. And, and even though Pole Riders isn't isn't delineated by screen like that, it's one continuous plane. It still has that back and forth push. And there were yeah. definitely cases where one player would get the ball almost into the other player's goal, and then the other guy would win with just like a crazy sprint across. It right. Was, there's all kinds of cool stuff like that. I, I played a game with um, with uh, Brendan Sheffield, who's the uh, the editor in chief of uh, Game Developers, one of my one of my old coworkers. And we, I, don't, I think it's maybe seven games to a match. I'm not sure. And we went up. Best of seven? Yeah. It might yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. And we went up to, I won the first three and then he won the next three. And then I won the, the deciding one. And of it course was you like, did. you're the best. I am. I am the best at, at that uh, out of one match. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so hang it up now. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. Go out on a high note. It feels like one of those games that you can, uh, like Nidhogg, where it's very simple, but you can develop. A lot of nuance too and the thing that's funny about it to me is that it's made by the guy who made Quop, and it really does feel like a, a nidhogg style game as interpreted by the Quop guy because it just the weird slop deliberately slightly sloppy weird yeah, people just right. sort of blobbing all over each other stuff. well like nidhogg is 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 much like a traditional fighting game even though it's really simple in that it's in that it's entirely like digital you know like every right. every interaction has an exactly opposite like block like every everything is very um is very crisp, whereas uh, Pole Riders feels totally analog. It feels like this weird blobby physics simulation where everything's kind of wobbly, and you're up on your the your if you vault up on the pole, like you can sort of you wave kind of one way or the other, yeah. yeah. And it just if if and the fact that the ball is on a line that itself is uh, it has a little bit of weight to it, yeah, and stuff. exactly. Yeah. There's physical simulation going on there. It just has this very um, wobbly feel to it, but it nevertheless 
battles can get really tense. Well, it gives you a little bit of the actual imprecision that this might actually have. Were, right. for some reason, two people <laughs> yeah. trapped on a 2D plane trying to kick a kettleball yeah. back and well, forth. That's why I like the game calls. so much. It feels yeah. like an invented game that you would make up with your like your buddies in like, the Except that it's, it's physically impossible. The, well, right, right. They're vaulting 20 feet in the air to kick a ball. But right, but it it's is. like a Calvin Balls type rule system of, right. all right, okay, we got this cable, we got this ball, we can hang from it. Oh, <laughs> no, we never get these poles. Wait, what if we also... like? Yeah, yeah it's really... If, if this world and this physics system existed... You could imagine people coming upon this game design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. You should definitely check it out. Yeah. And that guy's cool, actually. We did a um, we did an interview, Steve and I, uh, and Nick, actually, I think, did an interview with him that you'll hear later, of, assuming assuming the sound quality is good enough. And it's really fascinating. That guy is a, he's a philosopher at the University of Oxford and is just an incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-spoken guy, which is... Which is really cool because he makes these games that are just yeah, bonkers. It's, it's good that he's represented at this event by pole riders. I know. And uh, four DDR dance mats with a bad like vector art rock climber on yeah. the TV screen as yeah. like oh that's what that guy is. I thought it was all pixel art. Oh maybe it is pixel art, but it's yeah. very it's just very smoothly animated. Yeah, like yeah. It, it looks like it's Prince of Persia style. Yeah, all of his stuff looks like Prince of Persia out of this world or something. Yeah. I really yeah, he, he's a, he's a really smart guy. I didn't get to play it. Would have loved to play that game. We did play. We did play. Uh, Eighteen person eight, joust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have we, we kind of talked about joust on here too? Right. I don't know if we have. Yeah. It, it was one of our games of the year, like honorable mentions, but I don't know if we've talked about uh, goty.cx. Yeah, we've never even mentioned on any of these casts <laughs> that we did a games of the year. We did a games of the year this year, like the first one we've done since mm-hmm. two thousand nine, which was for two thousand eight games. Yep. And it's at goty.cx. Goty.cx. Um, so you should check them out. We put a bunch of good games on there. Yeah. One of the games that we talked about was Johann Sebastian Joust which was at this party. Um, it's an odd game in that it basically, it, it requires a computer to play because the computer is actually running the code, but all you actually are doing when you're playing the game is holding a PlayStation Move controller. Um, how the hell do you describe this game? It's a motion-based game where if, imagine if your Move controller was a cup of water or something that could be jostled from your hand, uh, and the goal is to jostle somebody else's controller. Yeah, the goal is to be the last person left with an, with a, with an unperturbed move it, yeah, controller. As soon as your move controller is, is jostled past an, an extent, it, yeah. it explodes. It explodes. And goes it down. turns red and goes... So but the cool thing is, is the faster the music goes, the background music, the more sort of more liberally you can move your controller yeah. and you can move across whatever play field. So the game room. by default is playing Bach, obviously, by based on the name, and uh, it'll... The music speed ramps up and down, so it'll, you know, you get the brrrp, and then when it starts going fast, everyone runs around like a complete crazy person because they know that they won't get knocked out. Anyway, I don't know if we're explaining this in any way that makes sense. That's fine. People can look it up. But the, yeah. but the but, we played a like a, a version, a build that was uh, allowed for many more players. I think that by default it supports seven. It's, it's seven, which is the, the usually standard. perceived maximum Bluetooth standard, but I guess they figured out that they can network three computers together and have 18 people playing. Yeah. Uh, so we, it was three teams of six up in this room at this party. Uh, I thought well, it was three teams. I thought it was two teams. Three teams. No, it was, it was red, oh, blue, it was and yellow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or blue, yellow, and purple, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just weren't aware of the third team. Because remember, you always had to look left, and that was the blue guys. Oh, and you had to look yeah. Right I got knocked out by guys. one of the by in like yeah, the first yeah, yeah. second at one point by, by one of the guys right next to me. And then Jake got assaulted by a flying Zimmerman. Yeah. <laughs> We noticed halfway through that Eric Zimmerman was sitting at the uh, at the other side of the thing, and he's on the yellow team. Yeah. Eric Zimmerman, a game industry gadfly, perhaps one. This uh, the recorder on which we are uh, recording this podcast is sitting on top of Rules of Play by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salem. That's true. 
Um, we're also recording on an, an Eric Zimmerman po- uh, <laughs> oh, podcast. Oh, we're recording on a Zoom recorder. The Zoom recorder. I guess Zimmerman. we have dubbed the Eric Zimmerman. Eric Zimmerman. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was uh, looking across this this field of eighteen people and seeing Zimmerman catch my eye and then hide <laughs> his move controller behind his back and sort of start like trying to give me like the cobra stare. I didn't know quite what was going on. And then he just leapt at me and almost knocked me to the ground. But Zimmerman basically took on the role of a suicide bomber. Yeah, Zimmerman, Zimmerman was suicide bombing. He would jump and turn his whole body as sideways as he could to see if he'd get... Not like just take out as many people as he could. He would stretch his arms yeah. so that he would just bash everybody as he flew. Yeah. It was an interesting strategy. Yeah. It was. It was fine. I saw Chris sneak attack a guy. It was pretty good. Yeah, that was my, that was my crowning joust achievement. It was, really it was cool. It was I funny was so actually. It was. It was. Um. There were. There's one guy left on the opposing team, and then me and my brother, my buddy Owen, who I your brother. Yeah. I, you. I said a thing that isn't correct. Oh, I heard <laughs> you. I heard you. I heard, you, got I heard you say brother. Oh, when you, you meant to you say buddy. It. You okay. get it. Um. My buddy Owen, who I know from from Boston, actually, he's a, a an AI guy, like PhD candidate at MIT. Uh, he and I were the were the last guys left on our team. Then there was another guy. Uh, on the opposing team, it was probably Zimmerman. Was, it, it wasn't Zimmerman. It was this huge guy who had been, oh, yeah. oh, I saw, who had yeah, been yeah, in yeah. like every game that at that guy, point. Yeah. Uh, that guy did not want to give up his controller, <laughs> and um, and he and Owen were like in doing the kind of strafe, right? The sort dance. of strafe circle, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I got to sneak around behind him and do the do the fucking like stealth move assassination, the Assassin's Creed uh, lock on thing. So that guy's dead now. He's dead. Why would you mean you walked near him and then touched his move controller? <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. It's a good game. Joust is great. Uh, if are there any ways people can own that game? I guess if you pledge if you to back, Venus Patrol, I think you, if you got it through Venus Patrol, Patrol, but I don't know if it's out yeah. publicly yet. Other than that, yeah. Sort of like if you back the Idle Thumbs podcast <laughs> on Kickstarter, you get Thirty Flights of Loving by Brendan Chung. That's true. It's a thing I hear you can do. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, Amelia, Amelia played, uh, my wife played 30 Flights of Loving, the build, whatever build, the latest that we have, uh, last night. She said it was very nice. She really liked it <laughs> as a non-gamer. Yeah. She also really liked Gravity Bone. How did she finish the game and still have confusion as to whether W makes you go forward? That's well, the one... I kind like, of pieced all the, her quotes together to make one mega quote. Oh, like, so, so that, that was from when go. she was right at the beginning. Right, of the right. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was her concluding remark. So, oh, I see. So W makes you go forward. That's like my dad <laughs> looking at Zelda. Oh, so you navigate through this maze. <laughs> like, that would be if my dad had played through all of Zelda and then that, that was, was his... That was, that's what, that was oh, his takeaway? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I think she was really... Yeah. It was funny watching her gravitate to things... That are just passively in the world is exactly what you want. I wish Brendan would have been standing there to watch, right. you know, kind of watch this playthrough. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really great. I'm excited for people to get their hands on this game. Uh, PC Gamer UK liked it though. Yeah, yeah. Graham Smith yeah. over at PC Gamer wrote a really, really nice uh, blog post about Thirty Flights of Loving. I think he said this game does more in this game tells a better story in 13 minutes than most games do in 13 hours. That was the headline. Yeah. yeah. That was very nice. So yeah, super nice. get ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare yourself. Anyway. What else is happening at GDC? I don't know. Well, we, we interviewed some guys. Work. Yeah, who we did you probably... end up talking to? So we talked to, and, and I don't, okay, so I can't promise all these people will actually uh, appear because the sound quality on some of them might be too bad to actually release, but we t- they were all cool people, so I'll mention them anyway. We talked to Christina Norman. Who is at, she's a designer at Riot Games and she was formerly at mm-hmm. um, Bioware. She worked on the Mass Effect series there. 
uh, now she works on League of Legends. Um, we talked to um, Tom Francis, who is a writer at PC Gamer and also the designer of Gunpoint, which is a really oh, nice. a really excellent game. It was in the IGF this year, and I, I liked it a lot. It was up for it was up for the design award. It didn't win, but it's uh, it's a really great game. So when it comes out, you should definitely get it. Um, we should talk about it on a future podcast. And then we talked to uh, Derek Yu, who is the Spelunky creator Aquaria. of Spelunky, yeah, and the artist on Aquaria. He also runs TigSource. Yes, he does. And he was he's a really cool guy as well. Um, and Spelunky uh, also was in the IGF. And then uh, we talked to Bennett Foddy, who I mentioned. Uh, we talked to him earlier. He's the creator of Quop and uh, Pole Riders and also GURP. And all of his games are at Foddy.net. They're all Flash games, and you can play them all for free. Um, and I think he's released iPhone versions of one or two of them. And then, finally, we talked to Ed Key, who is one of the creators of Proteus. Cool. Sweet. Yep. Exciting. I played a little bit of Proteus. It's cool. You should talk about that on the next Progress Cast. Maybe I will. I chased right. a frog around. <laughs> so get ready for that. I'll be ready. All right. Uh, yeah. Enjoy these. Goodbye. Sonically fascinating and enjoyable interviews. Yes. It's GDC 2012, and this is the first Idle Thumbs Conf Blast. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Steve Gaynor. And we're joined by Christina Norman, who is a game developer at Riot Games, uh, formerly of BioWare, where she worked on the Mass Effect series. Hello, people on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. I'm on the internet, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is the first time we're trying this. We're, Steve and I are, are walking around with a recorder, and we're going to grab uh, people we know in the games industry who are cool to sit down and to talk for 10 minutes or so about stuff they've been seeing or what they've been up to or what they think about video games or the industry or the conference. So we don't know if it'll work or not, but we're going to try it. How's Yay. it going, Christina? Uh, it's going good. I've been enjoying hanging out with you guys, talking about all kinds of exciting things that aren't going to be on this podcast. I know. We've burned <laughs> we all the past already. It, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, how, how long did you get in for the conference this weekend? Yeah, I've been here since Sunday, so I've been uh, just going to random summits and uh, and lectures so far. Yeah. Have, have you seen anything that's exploded your brain? Well, the thing about GDC is when you've gone for like four or five years in a row, it yeah. starts to feel a little repetitive mm. to some degree. And I think that's because um, the content is really, really focused on people who are, who are newer, who are learning about the games industry. So... You do tend to get uh, a little bit of repetitive stuff, but well, I, th uh, I think the corollary of that is that you also get people who are really sort of seasoned veterans of the games industry who end up kind of honing their talks over many years. And so, if you've been to the show for a number of years, often you've seen they might be really great yeah, talks, yeah. but you know you've seen you've seen a very similar version, version of, of it, it. Yeah. right, right, right. Sure. And, and you become more discerning over time. You start to yeah. ask, like, oh, I remember this guy. He did this talk. This looks like it's about half the same. Yeah, I'm yeah. probably well, not going to bother. And to we, see it. you and I were talking about the other day how we find that, you know, after a certain point, going a certain number of years to GDC, you you stop the novelty of kind of some of the more purely entertainment focused talks. You know, yeah. so right. Lose a bit of their the feel good talks. Luster, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like the feel good talks are really fun to attend, but you don't necessarily learn anything. And yeah, and I'm not here to be that. entertained. Ideally, I want to learn stuff, so mm -hmm. I really try and focus on going to. And it's it's kind of um, 
it kind of sucks actually when you go to a talk, you're like, maybe I'll learn something at this talk and I'm skipping this talk that I know would be fun. And then when you don't learn anything, <laughs> then you're like, God, I could have been having fun. <laughs> I could have been having fun. And, and that's like a bit of a letdown. But uh, I think things are going to pick up. Uh, the first two days are definitely more uh, new to the industry focus. So I think mm -hmm. uh, a lot of tutorials. Yeah, I think the rest of the week is going to be good. There's always there's always good talks. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're working on League of Legends at mm -hmm. Riot Games. Is yep. there anything like in particular that uh, is relevant to the work on that game that you're like looking forward to or that you came to the conference hoping you would you know find out more about? Kind of you know, uh, not really. Uh, but how can I put this? Like, I'm working on League of Legends right now, but first and foremost, I consider myself to be a designer. So I'm interested in the craft and the art of design, all aspects of it. Uh, I, and I look at GDC as a way for me to sort of catch up on all the stuff that's been going on in the industry that sure. isn't directly relevant to me. So yeah. uh, like so far, I've been really focusing on social and mobile gaming, which is something I'm really interested in. doesn't relate to what I do at all. But hey, I'm a designer. I'm not specifically a League of Legends designer. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's that's evident in the fact that you came from Bioware, where you worked on really uh, sort of very focused single player games. Yep. Um, and multiplayer. To... Multiplayer now too. Well, that's true. Did you work on that in Master I did. Okay, I did. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. And you've been at Riot what, like six months now or so? Yeah, about six months. Yeah. And I was at Bioware for five or six years right, before right. that. I mean, I don't know if this is the kind of stuff that we want to talk about in this cast, but I mean, I'd be curious to know as a, as someone who is a designer who's worked in such incredibly different mm -hmm. fields. Like, what I mean, what how, what was that like going to Riot and then professionally then working on almost the other end of the spectrum from mm -hmm. the design side? So, like for me personally, I'm very end product focused, and by that I mean uh, I'm really what I want is I just want the games that I'm working on to be games that people want to play and that they get that enjoyment from. So in that sense, it doesn't really matter how you get there. It's all sure. just like, are people happy? Are they excited to play this game? Are they passionate about it? So uh, so Bioware, you know, has very successful games. Uh, the Mass Effect franchise, I worked on all three of those. People are pretty passionate and excited about those. And League of Legends, it's a totally different audience, uh, but the passion is still there and, and that's what really drives me. So. Uh, the specific kind of game design I'm doing, it's more just how do I how do I get to that goal? Yeah. And by the way, uh, the day that we're recording this is the day that Mass Effect 3 came out. So congratulations, because yeah, you did a lot of work yeah. on that game. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. And I haven't had a chance to really check their views or anything, so hopefully it turns out good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always have your fingers crossed because you weren't yeah. there for, for when it actually started and everything. Yeah. But as far as I can tell, people are really into it. So. Yeah, but it's yeah. actually really cool because the other two Mass Effects, I knew knew it inside and out. When I play 3, I'm actually going to get some surprises since I wasn't there at the oh, end. Totally, yeah. yeah. So that's nice. Yeah, and you're wearing your Renegade shirt today. Yep, I'm wearing my, <laughs> my Bioware Renegade shirt because I'm a bit of a renegade, but <laughs> I still love Bioware, still love Mass Effect. Yeah. Um, and silently, we're also joined by Bronstring, Merrick Bronstring, sitting yes. quietly near the microphone. On the other side of the microphone, just to make his Hello, voice Ron. extra hollow and distant. Can yeah. you possibly say guys? Sure, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Left, more man. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Merrick's role in GDC coverage is to exactly. observe and judge. <laughs> intelligent discussion. It's, you, you lend an ambience to the whole proceeding. Gravitas, yeah. if you will. Um, I don't know, should, should we just like wrap it up? Yeah, yeah, this is break off and run away from microphone. Sure. Okay. okay. Right. Thanks, Christina. Yeah, it's Thanks. been really great talking to you. Thanks I'm going to start down. listening to Idle Thumbs now, and I'm going <laughs> to donate to the Idle Thumbs Kickstarter. <laughs>
at idlethumbs.net slash kickstarter. <laughs> you heard it here first. I mean, not first. <laughs> you but you definitely almost heard it certainly here. didn't hear it here first, but close enough. Right. <laughs> talk to you, uh, talk yeah. to you guys Thanks again. This is the GDC 2012 Idle Thumbs Conf Blast, the second one. I'm Chris Remo. Uh, I'm Steve Gaynor. And Tom Francis. Oh man, Tom Francis preempted me. He Sorry. is the designer of Gunpoint and also still, as far as I know, a, uh, a game journalist. Yeah, it hasn't stopped yet. <laughs> so how is, how is, this is your first GDC? Yeah, it's my I, first, I, eight years as a journalist and one year as a developer. <laughs> this is my first GDC. This is the Game Developers Conference. Oh, now yeah. you're welcome. Now, you're now, now I see the problem. <laughs> Well, and not oh, only really? that, you're here. Your first time here is as a finalist in the Independent Game Festival. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. fairly incredible. Well done. How long yeah, have you been working on on your game, Gunpoint? Uh, two years, but wow. Um, okay, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. I thought, yeah, I thought it was only about a year. Yeah, it's only about a year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing that now. Oh I yeah, get away with that. I will. You're <laughs> but it's, it's been uh, only on weekends, really, because right, sure, daytime job, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, what? Uh, how? Having been a journalist for so long, I mean, I you know, I. Asking this is relevant to me in particular, I suppose, because I was also a journalist and then went into development. Um, what's it like now being here and looking at it from the perspective of a developer? Uh, it's basically awesome. <laughs> I much prefer being a developer. Like I much prefer being seen as a developer. Yeah. But somehow, like everyone's so much more open and candid with you. Even people who know I'm a journalist will just right. talk about the, you know, the innermost secrets of. But now you can go and and, and spoil all of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I no. think that's I think that's part of just the IGF experience in general. Like, because because as a journalist, you probably mostly cover big commercial game development, right? Yeah, we did cover indie stuff as well. Yeah, um, but I feel like when you're at the IGF, just everybody is just like, oh yeah, here's what I'm working on. Talking to this company about this, maybe you know, and, and it's just like you don't have lawyers. Yeah, yeah, you know, or, yeah, or like, people yeah, on, HR. Yeah. Get mad at you or whatever. So. It's infectious too. I've like just been spilling ridiculous plans <laughs> and I haven't like thought through properly yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been really fun. So uh, just please go ahead. Spill <laughs> <laughs> those plans into our microphone, or you don't have to do that. Uh, I can tell you, I want to make an RTS. Oh, cool. And wow. I've been seeing a lot of AI developers rant and mm. taking careful notes on nice. what they're ranting about. Yeah, that's cool. The crazy shit they do. If you, um, I saw a talk by Mike Robbins about how Spring Command Two's AI works. And it uses something called a neural net, yeah. where it like a learning computer. Okay, you know what it is. <laughs> oh, he's watched Terminator. It's, uh, yeah, it's just a like they basically don't tell the AI what a good idea is and just make it randomly choose a, a thing to do, and uh, just remember how well it worked out, and then yeah. run millions and millions of simulations, and it just figures it all out. So you don't have to like uh, when you change the balance of the game. It only works in terms of DPS and HP, so it doesn't matter what DPS and HP of those units are, you can keep tweaking and the AI will still function in a way. Yeah, because you just run the sim again and it tests and figures out what yeah. the best yeah. thing to do is in any situation. But you don't even have to run the simulation again unless you change the behavior, because huh. the way it assesses situations isn't on, oh, he's got six engineers and three tanks, it's, oh, he's got this many DPS and this many HP. I see. Oh, oh right, yeah, because what it's doing is making a graph of, yeah, just those numbers and what to yeah. do based on the ratio and stuff. And I'm getting cool. really I mean, the idea of a game where you tweak how it decides that stuff. Right. I mean, something like that is much is probably more appropriate to a game like Supreme Commander than to a game like StarCraft, just because 
something like StarCraft is so much more about the small-scale, unusual tactics of different yeah, units, whereas I Supreme mean, Commander is very large, you know, theater kind of aggregate force versus aggregate force yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, totally like opposite ends of the scale. StarCraft yeah. so much about like abilities and micro. Right. And even like, I mean, I watch a lot of professional StarCraft and it's amazing that even those guys can't put their zealots in the front. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> it's like, you have to put the melee units at the front of the unit and the range guys at the back. And they can't get it right because the whole game is about managing that. That's like the highest level of skill is to get your melee guys at the front and yeah. the range guys at the back. Whereas stuff like Supreme Commander is trying to do all of that point. Yeah, so you're going to be in the uh, IGF Awards tonight, and uh, what are you up for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I just designed your game right? in the IGF, and I loved it, but I forget what your uh, it's, it design. Yeah, design. Okay. Um, and I guess everyone's up for the audience award, like all finalists. I'm right. Oh, okay. that. So I'm going to lose design to Spelunky and audience <laughs> to Frozen Synapse. <laughs> Got it all planned. You heard it here first. Uh, you'll hear it here after the winners are announced. That's true. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah. Well, I I find your game really interesting. Like when you're talking about making RTS, because my snap reaction in my head and it's wrong. But the, my impression was like, oh, that's interesting because you're again wrong because you're not really making a real time game now. But you are. But Gunpoint, it feels a lot more about states and like. Uh, tactics and long-term strategy and like reading the board basically it's not like a real-time game in the sense of like you're reacting frequently yeah. you don't really react to hardly anything because if a guard has spotted you you're probably already getting shot you know yeah. yeah well and also the game is entirely uh predictable in the sense that if you know how the systems work well enough once you've made your plan i mean you, you know you can miscalculate yeah. but it's possible to conclusively know Exactly what's going to happen yeah. based on yeah. the things you do. And, and both those things yeah. are intentional. Like it's, um, yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to avoid yeah. stuff where you have to be skillful enough to pull off something under time pressure. Right. But I mean, I wanted to be able to plan, and I definitely wanted to be predictable in the way you say. Because that's what I love about Deus Ex is that the rules themselves are consistent, and yeah. I know how it will work. Yeah. And when it surprises me, it's because the simulation is so complex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, the, in terms of the real time thing, I wanted it to be. Uh, Basically, a, a, an intellectual game. So if you are, if you're smart enough, you can do well at it, regardless yeah. of your finger skill. I mean, some, actually yeah. fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and something I like about it is, I when when I've been playing it, there have been situations where I've seen uh, a problem I want to solve. That the first thing I think is, oh, I could solve that by like pressing a button and then waiting for a guy to go through a door and then pressing the button again. And that, you know, it's not a lot of dexterity, but it's still kind of timing, you know? And then I think for one second more, I'm like, oh, well, I could press the button and then I can wire the light switch that he's going to be walking to to close the door yeah. on him so and figure out a smart way just to press yeah. one button for him to lock himself in. And I think the game is really good at giving the player opportunities like that to feel smart by optimizing yeah, and yeah, by like, totally. kind of tricking the AI, which is fun to, to do, even though it's not totally necessary to achieve what you're well, trying to achieve. And the first time that I locked a guy, and this, again, this was unnecessary to actually complete the level, but I remember one time being extraordinarily pleased when I had a guy lock himself in a room and then in trying to leave the room, knocking himself out by <laughs> smashing a door into, into his face because it was hooked up to the light switch he was trying to throw on. So I, I essentially locked a guy into a dark, un, you know, non-unlockable room, so a guy was just trapped in essentially a room of walls, yeah. and then had him just smash a door into his own face <laughs> yep. and get knocked unconscious. And I'm yeah. like, well, this game is pretty good. Yeah, I have to say, I've definitely done that it's myself, pretty... but with me like pulling the trigger because I'll like 
unwire the switch, his the switch from the right. door, so he can't open it. Yeah. And then turn the lights off, and so now he's just patrolling, stuck inside yeah. this whole room. And then I'll just wait till he gets in front of the door, and then I press the button to yeah. open it to yeah. knock him out. Because you could be much less efficient, just open the door and then like sneak up behind him and pounce on him. Yeah. Or whatever, yeah. But it's something something I go back and forth on is whether that stuff should be required at any point because I sometimes get testers kind of I don't know if they're complaining or just kind of pointing out that there's these really complex solutions but you don't have to do them and you can do something really simple and that yeah. works and some people seem kind of pissed off by that but for me when I'm playing a game and I discover something like that yeah. I want it to be unnecessary I want it to yeah, be because I, 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 I feel like I'm so starved these games these 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 days for games that do operate like that. I mean, it's just so... It almost feels like a relief when I play a game where I can stumble upon something like that that the developer probably is aware of. I mean, you, you know, you've probably come across it yourself many times, but is not being so just forcefully telegraphed by the game that I know that, that I did it because every other person did it on level four right here because that's what the game is yeah. very narrowly directing you to do. You know, there's just something nice about having that that at least illusion of coming up with an original solution yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. It's um the fact that a door can open towards a guard and yeah. that knocks him out is something that's never explicitly explained yet. And right. I, I keep going back and forth about yeah. whether to tell anyone because no, don't do it. if well, they never discover it, that's a shame. But if they do discover it, I want it to be because they discover it. Yeah, well, here, here's my other thought on that is that that is, I mean, the, the core conceit of the game is obviously fairly absurd. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a. I don't know what you mean, Chris. But, but, but. Bouncy it's, pants? What's absurd about that? <laughs> Hypertraps you know, is that cool. But I think. Bouncy it, pants would be ridiculous. But it's, all, but, it's, but it's all within a fairly sort of like um, relatively serious fictional underpinning. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all kind of a sort of straight, almost sci-fi-ish conceit of the rewiring thing. I mean, it's, whereas the door knocking out a guy is is kind of, it's basically slapstick. And I, I like the fact that it's not explicitly acknowledged by the game and the fiction, because it is a little bit one step further than the kind of straight premise. Yeah. But the fact that it's supported is fantastic. I mean, that's the kind of, I was talking on a recent episode, actually, about Thumbs, about mechanical humor. And I think yeah. that that to me is a, is a just classic example of that. And that's the kind I think you have a little bit of fictional wiggle room when it comes to that particular kind of humor in games. Where you don't, it doesn't need to all be entirely justified fictionally. Um, and the discoverability of that is itself a really big part of what of what makes the the joke almost work. Yeah, and my my hope is that the serious kind of tone or the serious look of the world the world yeah. is all quite. It's kind of realistic, like it's stylized, but yeah. mm -hmm. it was important to me the that the proportions are typical. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, the proportions of a normal human being. And to me, that always makes slapstick stuff funnier. Yeah. Like if, if I feel the game has really big, exaggerated heads and comedy characters, and they're doing their kind of like, ah, look at us, we're a wacky thing. When something wacky happens in it, it's less funny because the developer is making the joke. It's like, ha ha, look at this. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if the world is serious and you've done something that's funny, mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. that gets with belly laugh. Well, it me. also acknowledges that that is the exact kind of humor that happens in the real world. I mean, the real world <laughs> is not a cartoon places. location. No, but I mean, when a physical goofy thing happens, like when your friend slips on a, a banana peel, I mean, that, I've actually seen that. I'm not <laughs> what kidding, life I'm, are you living? No, 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 I've seen that happen for real. But the fact that, it's, that, it, that it was not staged and set up to be a joke, or at least not explicitly so, yeah, exactly. you know, is what that, makes that it's it. happening within your normal world. Exactly. Is what yeah. makes it funny, right? Yeah. It stands out from everything else. Yep. With the, I mean, with the door thing, I feel like it's such... With stuff like that, it's such an edge case, like it's not right. a core strategy. Yeah. So I feel like you would just kind of like, 
you could you could script something where it's almost certainly going to happen on every playthrough, so the player can observe it. But then that's you know that's going to since you don't have to do it, and it's really not that helpful to do it almost any <laughs> time. It's just it's it's almost, well, it's it, it'll, it'll just ruin it for the people that would have found it on their own. I used to have a puzzle in there where the only way to, to take care of this garden was to make him knock himself out. And I tried to not tell people explicitly how to do it, so I had like three or four different hints that would say, oh, when you open a door, it'll open away from the thing that opens it. And I'd say, oh, when you open a door, it opens with some force. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, when guards open doors, you know, this can happen. And I still had like a test to just, he went through every hint that I'd given him and explained how he misinterpreted it. So oh, he still didn't know the doors right, were right, right, right. And it was just like a load of effort to teach people something that they prefer discovering on their well, own. Well, and I think that that actually, I think that goes to the, that sort of reinforces this discussion in the sense that I suspect one of the reasons they, they it never quite connected with them is because it is a fairly silly thing to happen. You know, it, it is slightly outside of the, the, the tone. So, you know, the, not, not being... With, with, if you are not personally obsessed with making it happen, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like the pe people who find it is hilarious, people who don't, fine. It's world space, what yeah. it is to them. I think some of it is also about contrivance, because you have that, yeah, yeah, one, exactly. that one moment in, like, you know, the, the third level or whatever, defenestration, you know, where you essentially train, you can knock guys through a window by pouncing on them, but you're not training it. It's just like, okay, you have to knock this guy out. You'll knock him out by pouncing on him, and it's a natural reaction to that. So you're like, you're making someone do something very straightforward, pounce on the guy to knock him out, and they see this side. Whereas like, the the trait forcing the door knocking a guy out is is so much more contrived that it's not even yeah. the ball, ballpark. You know? All that I stuff comes as well the way it's in the defenestration level. That's good. All that stuff kind of comes from I play it one way. I managed to do something cool, and it was only because I happened to that yeah. I happened to be over there when that happened, and I tried really hard to make it happen. And then when it happened, it was cool. And then I go back and level it and just move it closer to the window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that that's fantastic. Cool I mean, that one of my favorite. I mean, I I really enjoyed this game right from the first time I played it. You know, and it was in an earlier state than it is now. And I when I saw, you know, I, I don't even remember where, but I've seen you explain where a lot of that stuff came from, and that it made me like the game even more. Like the notion that. <laughs> that a lot of actual formalized mechanics, or at least conventions, were born out of essentially you operating in the game's sandbox is really cool. I mean, that's the kind of thing that comes directly out of a game that is a simulation. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it reminds me of the stuff that uh, like Harvey Smith has talked about with, mm -hmm. um, with Dishonored. How like, QA was like, oh, if you chain these powers together, you can fly all over the place. And he's like, that's cool. That's we'll, we'll, yeah. that, we'll support that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's not something that they wrote in a design document and executed. It's something that they discovered during development and supported, which is great. Yeah. Something, yeah. Something I really wanted to do was uh, make a game that played the way I played Deus Ex. So not, it's nothing like as good as Deus Ex, not as complex as Deus Ex. But sometimes when, like, some of my friends don't like Deus Ex and they watch me play it and they're like, oh wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> what you just did was ridiculous. Classic Idle Thumbs. <laughs> Situation. And here. so, yeah, it's quite interesting. I haven't really thought about it like this before, but I guess I've ended up, it, like, for the people who get it and like it, um, a game which you will play in the same stupid experimental way that I like to play games. So, yeah, I'll suit it to myself. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for talking to us about Gunpoint, your IGF experience, and everything. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Have a good rest of the show. Good luck tonight. Yeah, bad luck. In, in the past. I don't even want as to be splunky. Like, it's so much better than my <laughs> game, I would like to see it win. <laughs> Bad luck then. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Actually, good luck. Reason. <laughs>
This is the Idle Thumbs Conf Blast, the third one. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Steve Gaynor. And we're joined by Derek Yu. Hello. Hi. This guy made Spelunky. Yep. Is that how you say it? Uh, Spelunky. Spelunky. I always... <laughs> I, People I, say Spelunky, but that's weird. Spelunky. See, I like that you pronounce it that way. Yeah. Spelunky. <laughs> you do love it. You've always but loved it. It doesn't seem appropriate. No, fine. Uh, it's not. It's not bad. I, I, both ways of pronouncing it is fine with me. Yeah, so. all right, that's fine. Um, so you are here. You're here in the IGF, and you are nominated for the big award. Yep. Yep. If, no pressure. You know. <laughs> I mean, this this is the big one. Spelunky seems like it's been in development and has existed in various forms for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, does this? I don't know. Does this feel like it's a culmination of things at all? It does. It feels like it's coming to the end of a really, really strange journey that started off as a very small thing, in my opinion. Um, the original Freeware game, I, I kind of just started it all on a lark. I had some inspiration with the, the randomly generated levels and stuff like that, and, and took it from there. And to, to take it to Xbox and now to IGF Grand Prize, is, um, it's, it's one of those things where you look back and you're kind of just like, how did this happen? <laughs> Well, good luck with the awards. Thank tonight. you, thank you. Because you're you're also up for design, right? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's interesting actually that now that I think about you know what you just said is that I feel like even though Spunky's in the IJF now, I feel like it's actually been an, like a stated influence on other games that have been in the IGF like over the past couple of years. Yeah. There's some, like I I feel right. like Spunky comes up often as a game that that other indies have pointed to as an. Yeah. And but I mean now it's and that's happened while still in this lead up to your game actually ending up in the festival. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because I play you know I, tons of people played Splunky years ago when you yeah, came yeah, out yeah. the Game Maker version, but that was you never entered that into the competition or anything, right? Or did you? No, I did. Yeah. So you kind of did you know you were going to do you know like a like a. a you know, commercial or whatever, finished version, so you intentionally waited until I, then, or? Like, I, I didn't, actually. Um, <laughs> we don't have sirens, but we have that guy. This is a classic idle fun siren. I didn't, but, uh, uh, yeah, I had other reasons for not entering the original version of Spawn, even though some people have told me, oh, you should, because it's like, you know, I, I think it's a cool game and whatever. Um, part of it was that uh, I wasn't sure whether I was going to enter IGF like again because I hadn't completely made up my mind about what I felt the IGF is about and what other people thought IGF was about. You know, is it um, when I when I was in the IGF with Alec Holoka for Aquaria, um, it was this we were complete newcomers to the scene, and I think there there are a lot of people that still feel like oh the IGF is really for that. It's not so much a competition, you know, like a best of the best competition, but it's more of like a best of the new competition. So those are two different ways that people look, looked at it. And I can see, because I was someone who was completely new, and I, I know exactly how that affected us then, you know, in such a, in a positive way, I, I, could, I can kind of see both, both sides yeah. of the argument. And, and I was, I was um, so there's that. I, I was kind of avoiding, like, making a decision about that and, and you know entering would, would be would have been making a decision for me um, about it and the, I think the other reason why I didn't enter was just because I it, it felt like a smaller game to me and even though 
people really enjoyed it. A lot of people, um, you know, were influenced by it in, in various ways. I was still, to me, it was still a small game, and I didn't have s concrete plans to to uh, develop a better version or a more expanded version. But I still didn't feel completely comfortable entering it because it was it was such a small like kind of. Uh, uh, a for fun project, yeah, like a yeah. lark, or a lark, yeah, exactly. Well, because the the thing you mentioned about you know newcomers versus you know old hands kind of thing is it reminds me of if I'm not mistaken, uh, Edmund McMillan didn't enter Binding of Isaac into the IGF, and I was kind of because I, I judged the IGF, and I was like, where's Binding of Isaac in here? I want to dominate it for design because it's a really well designed yeah. game, and I. And I don't know if he ever made any statement about it, but I wonder if it was the kind of thing where he's like, I've won, I've been in IGF stuff before. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to take away from other people's chances of, of being highlighted by putting my game in or something. Right. I mean, I'm not going to speak for Edmund, but no. I, I feel like for him, it's, it's it's probably more about just the stress of mm. of entering. I see. Um, and I think that I think with all the stuff they're going through, with, well, that game super. Was Stuff. Binding of Isaac was expressly for him a kind of relaxation project. Almost. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense too. Yeah, because I mean, entering the IGF is like you have to keep up with the builds and like deal with like submitting it and all you that. You do, kind of stuff, right? and there's just there's a lot of just emotional stress that, that right. goes with being <laughs> being a part of it. You know, whether whether you get nominated or not, there's just like this big kind of like it's it's just an extra burden. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're constantly wondering, like, am I going to get nominated? And then, yeah, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Am I going to make it to the next level? Right. Yeah, like a video game. Exactly. I don't know if you've exactly. played this before, but it's like, so. it's about getting to the next level. Oh, that. Right. I, I, I know you're talking about I've done that. Okay. So how's, how's the show been for you? How's GDC been? It's been great so far. Um, I saw a few of the IGS talks yesterday, and I really liked them. Um, I saw the failure workshop, uh, the audio panel, and the the clones discussion, clones mm. talk. Yeah. And then other than that, I've been working on the game and then today was the first day of the expo. So I've sure. just been manning the booth and trying to kind of contain my my nervousness. We got a laugh track for this. Those people found yeah. hilarious as well. <laughs> uh, sorry, it was a little mistimed. That was a good answer. We weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> there was a joke in there somewhere. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's great, and yeah, there's another couple of days that people are going to be coming down and playing. Have, have you got like something that I that I found interesting talking to some other uh, indies is you know like a lot of times indies work in kind of isolation, like at their house or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and they'll send out builds to people and get notes back and stuff. Yeah, but they don't have that opportunity to actually watch people play their game live and see how they play it. And t so, have you gotten to do a lot of live play testing, or is are you kind of seeing people play Spongebob live for? Not maybe not the first time, but you know, is it like a new experience? For um, you? I mean, I've seen, I've watched my friends play and stuff, yeah. but really, it's Pax and and uh, oh, GDC. Yeah. You guys have been at Pax, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we were at Pax, and that was a great chance to watch people play. And I think you know, watching people play, the the indication has been that you know we're on the right track with the, the design and stuff like that. So um, I haven't like, I haven't, I haven't. I haven't done a whole lot to get lots of live testing going in between. Um, mostly just been having people play and then giving feedback and then, yeah. like a few points here and there when I'm watching people play live. Yeah. I get yeah. these conventions and stuff. It's always, I mean, speaking of emotional 
you know, trauma. <laughs> it's always fucking scary just to hand someone you've never met before the controller and be like, so do whatever you want to this thing I made. Yeah. You know, and maybe they're totally into it or maybe they just run into a wall for 10 minutes and they're like, this sucks. And right. And you have to figure out why why both of those things happen between two different people. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think the multiplayer aspect is definitely helped a lot, at, at, especially at these conventions where there are a lot of people around and you can, yeah. mo most people are playing multiplayer. I never I actually got to play it co-op because I, I didn't have anybody around two controllers. To yeah, but it's actually a great way to play the game for the first time because, you know, even if you don't know exactly what's going on, you can help each other and it's... It's Does it have like revival mechanic kind of stuff? There like, is, yeah. Oh, cool. So it's a little bit easier in that sense too. It sounds um, nice because I mean, you know, it's like a roguelike, so it has like sudden permadeath a lot of times. But if yeah, you, it's single player. But if in co-op you can like keep each other in the game, that's cool. That right. Nice. Yeah. Someone mentioned to me that it's it's like a roguelike. I mean, multiplayer and roguelikes has always been this very very sticky issue with only like a couple of roguelikes that have even been attempted it. It always involves some kind of like hybrid turn-based real-time play. It's like it's very. So you're talking more like traditional. I mean traditional, yeah, 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 yeah like real, yeah, yeah. real traditional roguelikes. Right, right. um, and and yeah, it's just been it's just been a difficult sure. issue. But people want to do it because it seems cool. Yeah, and, yeah. and someone mentioned that Spunky's kind of like the first game to to give a multiplayer roguelike like experience um, so I had never thought about it like that but I, I think it's I think it's cool and I was happy to hear that just because it, it has been such a issue with traditional roguelikes yeah traditional road well, because when, when I when I've seen people playing multiplayer of Spelunky it reminds me of um, multiplayer in New Super Mario Brothers for the, for the Wii sure yeah, yeah. Uh, but it seems like having the additional like randomization uh, aspect to it it, just, it seems like there's more there because like when you play co-op and you play through something that's really static there's only so many times you can do that before you kind of expend the mm -hmm. possibility space there but if you and your friends can just get together whenever and you're like all right let's roll up a new spelunky map and try to get through it that seems like it's a really that mesh is really nice so that's cool yeah and i did think about uh new super mario brothers wii when i was designing the, the multiplayer for spelunky um because i had a lot of fun with it but there were there were aspects of that I didn't like. Like I didn't like the bubble mechanic, um, which it just—I don't know—it it ended up feeling almost like a cheat in the game. And I—I and I, I think that's something that that they've started—they've added started adding a lot of that kind of stuff in their, in their games, especially the Mario series. Like New Super Mario Brothers, I think had a like if you die a certain number of times, there's like a block appears at the beginning of the level that you can then hit that sort of plays the level for you almost, I think. I don't remember the mechanic yeah. exactly, but they're, they're starting to add a lot of just helper helper uh, mechanics to, to, to help to, to get players through the game. And uh, I, I'm really not a big fan of that type of stuff. Well, um, I, think, I'm sorry, I, I, was, I, I think that's probably a big reason there's been, it seems like a growing, a growing audience for roguelikes or, or kind of roguelike likes, you know, the sort of when you get a couple degrees away, but you still have that feeling of that really intense challenge and the like strongly imposed kind of rule system and often random elements, um, as in your game and things like Binding of Isaac and yeah. uh, even something like Super Meat Boy, which is not at all a roguelike, but again, it's very just 
it's it's there's no exceptions made yeah. just arbitrarily to you know to to help you along in that respect. And it feels like that's something that's a really strong current in independent game design right now. And I I suspect a big reason for that is because games like the Mario series traditionally are the kinds of games. I mean, Mario's not a it's never been a super difficult game, but traditionally speaking, Mario games always were very rigid in their application of the rule set. And like when when that when those franchises are the ones that then become extraordinarily forgiving and extremely sort of fuzzy in that respect, um, I think that there's a huge gap that opens up for people to still have that that experience of engaging with sort of strict system. Um, and like a lot of games have bubbled up in that respect, and there's been like those are games that I think traditionally people would not expect to like light the world on fire. You know, like it's, right. it's such conventional wisdom is so much about just allow the player to complete this experience with, with don't go overboard with you know friction and with, with, with that kind of stuff. But yeah, it does not seem to be the case in independent development right now, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, there's a lot to like about about like the new Super Mario yeah, Brothers games and yeah. stuff, and I definitely st study them for the good things as well as the bad things. Um, but there's a you know the good things that about Super Mario Brothers, the, the new modern uh, games, even continuations of these old these classic series. Like, you know, I really like the increase in the, the production values. And there's a lot of stuff that that becomes smoother, and it should be smoother. Sure, and there's yeah. a lot of stuff that becomes smoother. And it feels like they kind of filed off this part of the game that was actually much more interesting and, and much more challenging and, and much more exploratory and letting the player kind of figure things out themselves and yeah. not not mocking the player um, with like I, I, I always have a problem patronizing the player. Yeah, I always have a problem with, with like suggestions from the game to move down to a easier difficulty or something. Even if it's optional, <laughs> yeah. it feels like a taunt yeah. from the game. Um, and I don't think that's that's the intention. The intention is to help players through. But I think there are other ways that you can um, help players stick with the game and get through it without kind of going to, to that level, if you yeah. kind of think about it. So um, I think a lot of independent developers are trying to trying to, you know, Keep up with modern game design without losing the parts of of games that that they enjoy from older games and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so thanks so much for talking with us, uh, Derek Yu, and good luck at the awards tonight. Yeah. Uh, and uh, looking forward to when Spunky's released on, on XBLA. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. This is the Idle Thumbs GDC 2012 Cod Blast, the fourth one. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Steve Gator. And I'm Nick Brecken. And we're joined by Bennett Foddy, the developer of Quop and GURP and Pole Riders and all sorts of other games that you can find on Foddy.net. Thanks very much. Yeah. How's your GDC going? Uh, it's great. It's my first GDC. Oh, so cool. uh, it's been incredible. It's all these people I know from the internet, and now I've got to meet them in real life. Yeah. What's yeah. the Sorry, well, I mean, you're uh, you're the only game here in the IGF at the IGF uh, Pavilion, but you also gave a talk at the Indie Game Summit. Yeah, as well, uh, right? yeah, I've been like in everything. I'm I'm doing experimental gameplay workshop with uh, Mega GURP, which is GURP being played on uh, dance mats. 
And uh, yeah, I gave a talk that was like the first talk of GDC. And we had a party last night with some of my games. Yeah. And I'm an IGF loser, so. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, seriously though, I mean, it was just been great to be able to come out here and sort of have a booth on the floor and everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you've been really involved. I think a lot of people from the GDC are spectators, but it's cool you've been in so many different aspects of it. Well, I mean, given how tired I am now, I think I can understand why people in subsequent years would come back and just like hang out. Yeah. Right, that makes sense. But, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I don't get to come here every year. It's, 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 uh, this is a sideline for me, and I don't always manage to get away. I can't always justify the expense, so I just really want to do it full on. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. Something I learned in your talk. Uh, on Monday was that you're a researcher at Oxford? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and in philosophy, right? That's right. Yeah, so talk a little bit about how game weird, fucking crazy <laughs> games interact with your, your history as a researcher. Well, well you know, for, for many years it didn't. I sort of work on uh, medical uh, ethics, medical philosophy, uh, huh. biomedical technologies. There wasn't really any overlap. Plus also, like, philosophy is full of a lot of... Well, okay. uh, you're, like your your games, uh, the ones that have really I think picked up attention, like Plop and Derp, have been about like controlling muscle groups. Left thigh, right thigh. Right, right, right. So I mean, I'm starting to see it that way. But you know, in, philosophy is full of these kind of old-fashioned people, not just old people, but people who could have been born like many generations ago, and they don't really play games. And so I kind of I was in the closet for a long time. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I just I started to get more press, and it just started to become unfeasible to do that. And plus, I started to think it was, I was being silly about it, so I, I came out as a kind of video game person. And so <laughs> to, now, to your peers, yeah, not yeah, not yeah. just to the to the people on internet forums, right? So, so, and now I'm trying to kind of roll the two things together a little bit. But it's more about doing philosophy of uh, video game addiction. And that's kind of the angle I'm taking. So that's interesting. Yeah, now it's, you know, people are really talking about video game addiction, so. I can kind of make a niche there, and then I've got an excuse to come to events like this, and I can put it on my. Uh, well, I, I can't really charge it to my academic accounts, but at least, at least I don't have to kind of claim leave. Like it sort of is worth I'm doing public engagement, so uh, it's all right. Well, one of the, this is this is such a weird thing to bring up, but uh, speaking of video game addiction, there's actually it's funny that you bring that up because one of the things that I respect so much about your games, and that I, I think is one of the reasons I find your games so kind of philosophically appealing, is that. They appear, at least to me, and I, I could be wrong about this, but they seem to almost deliberately eschew a lot of the techniques and attributes that many designers deliberately include with the either implicit or explicit goal of getting people addicted to their games, or at least something approximating addiction. Right. It's, it, I think that's true. Uh, I, I do sort of throw away a lot of, of uh, standard video game tropes, but not all of them. I mean, I, I yeah, do want yeah. games to be, I want my games to be kind of maximally accessible. Sure. But the way that I understand that is only within For what they sort are. of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But the, no, like Quap, for example. Yeah. It doesn't put like a string of menus and buttons and tutorials in between you and the game. It yeah. just says, here you are, just play it. Uh, but I do, like, I do think about it in certain kind of video gaming ways. One of the things that we do as video game designers is we make sure that whatever the player does, there's some kind of feedback. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm big on those ideas. I think those things make a game better without necessarily kind of forcing it down a particular road. Yeah. But there are some sorts of things which you do, like if you have like levels and like boss monsters and guns, all of those things kind of force you to make a game that's similar to other games. So I don't want to do that. Like, I, mean, I don't have a lot of time to work on games. 
Um, and I'm, to be honest, you know, I've been playing games sort of non-stop for sort of almost 30 years now, and I'm bored of games with guns. I'm bored of, yeah. I'm bored of platformers. I still enjoy like a really good one, don't get me wrong, but I want to play new things, and I, I feel like there's all these people making kind of crazy new games at the moment. So yeah, no, it's I want, yeah, that's what I want to be part of. I mean, you play a shooter, like, you know, one shooter for eight hours or whatever, and then often, long before you finish, at least for me, long before I finish it, I've gotten gun fatigue. But I feel like I'm in just sort of the macro version of that now, where I, right. I almost have just overriding gun fatigue, where I just, right. okay, one more game where you just endlessly shoot a gun forever. All right. Doesn't mean there aren't there are not great examples of games being made that use those mechanics, but right. as a concept, it's something that really gets weird. No, that's right, and, and I think that I get, you know, it's really unfair of me in a way. If I see a game and go, it's got a gun, I don't want to play it. But that's just the emotion that I have. That's perfectly it's fair. And you know, the same thing with, I mean, I love that kind of high fantasy uh, thing as well, like the high fantasy role-playing games. But then you have like Skyrim, Skyward Sword, like you've got all these games coming out with the exact same sort of setting and ideas and experience. I, I've kind of lost interest in that as well. But you do, like, you do get gems coming out of AAA uh, studios. I thought yeah, Mirror's Edge, cool. like, there's a game. Uh, that, I love that game. Yeah, that doesn't have guns. It does. Combat. That was the worst part of that game. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what did you say? I said it does have guns, and that was the big weakness we of that game. We must have played it. There were parts where you actually had to use He's guns. He's joking. Oh, okay. Because my... Yes. No, but I mean, my, my like, mental version of that game doesn't have guns. No, that's, that was my... That's how I played it. Yeah. But, also, I mean, despite being very aware of uh, gaming addiction, you did manage to ruin two lives. Yeah, I was going to bring that up next. <laughs> I mean, that, that's Nick and I sort of, this is the thing I, lo I, I like so much. Nick and I, when we were, we talked about this way back in the day on the podcast, but we were in a hotel room together uh, during a BlizzCon several years ago, and we entirely, entirely intrinsically, just not with, with any sort of artificially you know, extrinsic, extrinsically imposed rewards. We just created almost a flop addiction for ourselves yeah. with this like one-upmanship right. of like we were sitting there back to back in this hotel room, each on a laptop, going like, "Oh man, I just got 17 meters." Yeah. Guys, oh god damn it! I um, love hearing that. That was an like, amazing experience. My, my best experiences in games have been like playing with a good, a good friend or with my brother, and, yeah. and like just like totally getting lost in a game together and I think that's like one of the best things that gaming in general has to offer so I'm really I'm really glad to hear that but look I mean I, I, that's why I think that that addiction in video games is an interesting philosophical problem because we we like it right you know we use it as a selling point um, you know there used to be awards not anymore because it's kind of gone out of vogue but there used to be awards for like most addictive game and and you know so it's not it's it's you would never do that about like an antidepressant, you know, we yeah. never say, you know, buy our antidepressant, it's the most addictive one on the market. You're going to love buying more of this. You're going to love funneling money into right. this product. Exactly. And that's what I think is a bit creepy about free-to-play, because it actually yeah. starts to take on those overtones. But if you've bought a game, you've already paid as much as you can pay. So it's, it's sort of like, if you get addicted, it sort of indicates that you're having a good time and you don't want to stop. Um, but well, there is necessarily also, indicate you're having a good time. No, right. So there is that dark <laughs> yeah. side of it. I, just, that's, I think it is kind of fascinating. It, it all depends on what the what the mechanics that yeah. cause that. All right. Because right? I mean, you can. There's stuff that's way more slot machine-y, like boot drops and, yes. and like all this, uh, you know, reward schedule kind yeah. of stuff. But someone at some point asked me of like what I thought about game addiction and that kind of exploitative gameplay. And I was like, well, 
you can be like you can be addicted to, to a game in the way that you are when you stay up until 3 a.m. playing Super Smash Brothers with your friends like all weekend or, or like Mario Kart or, or Halo on Xbox One or something like that and that is just you've all bought the game and it's so mechanically yeah. good that right. you, you just don't want to stop playing right. it. And, and I feel like that's kind of what you guys' plot yeah. example was. Yeah. Versus yeah. like, oh, I gotta wait for my next, you know, sugar drink. You can be addicted to anything, but I mean, there's a there's a line that you have to draw where right. whether it, whether something's being malicious about. Yeah. About yeah. That. yeah. You, you know, you know, I, I gave a talk at NYU where I was using like Diablo and the, the loot drop system. It's like a, I was comparing it to slot machines, and I was saying that's exploitative. Yeah. Whereas I don't think like Tetris is exploited, but they actually they actually said you know like fuck that you know Diablo is my favorite game of all time. So some people like the slot machine thing, right? Even if it is, they, they were saying even if this is exploiting my psychology and making me addicted through like that through the lizard brain. But that's the big difference. Well, I don't know, Steve. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, you played a ton of Diablo. Too, I, so you have I did. Well, I'm Diablo one, and I I think that's something that's really makes the issue in video games a much more complicated and and nuanced gray area than a slot machine, for example. Because a slot machine is literally nothing but that. Whereas Diablo, especially Diablo 1 in particular, is an incredibly atmospheric, coherent world yeah. with with amazing uh, art design and sound design and music. I mean, there's a lot of artistry in that game that doesn't, it, when you walk into a, into a hall of slot machines in a casino, right. it's just nothing but depressing and that's it. And right. so, it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's, that's but there is a point though. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe it does. Maybe maybe the uh, the justification for the slot machine is in the value it provides. And the thing about like a, a real slot machine is it's not providing any value to the person whatsoever. You're seeing the same set of wheels going around over and over again. And it's difficult to justify. Well, there, that. There's a point when you're playing a game though that you see that slot machine sort exactly. of become exposed. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I find that I'll be playing a game and I'll be addicted to it, but I'm still getting value. And then it's just, there's like a curve where yeah, there's a point where I just realize, yeah. oh, now it's just numbers and right. there's nothing here. And, and the same game can be both of those, as you say. I mean, yeah. like, I've played more Diablo 2 than any human should in his life. And past a certain point, I wasn't getting anything emotionally or artistically out of the experience. I mean, right. they're def I definitely am self-aware enough to realize that past a certain number of hours in that game, past a certain number of just repeated playthroughs, once I was just playing the same class through, Again and again and again. There really was very little that I was I was emotionally getting out of that experience. I mean, I'm not going to reflect any more really on anything. I was purely just in it, and it doesn't mean I think it's a bad game because I did get a lot of genuine value out of it. But you, you know, it, again, it's not. There's it's there's a big gray area there where. So I've been talking to the uh, guys in the gambling lab at Oxford about oh, about this stuff. They've been really studying this. Lab. Yeah, they're studying like <laughs> wow. how people get addicted to gambling. Yeah, no, right? yeah. And there's all these different things that, that kind of characterize uh, the transition into um, problem gambling, right? Yeah. You start having certain kinds of thoughts, you get more superstitious, you start chasing a loss, like so you think, well, that wasn't a real go, you know, if I just, you know, if I, if I uh, play again after, and then I'll bet really big because I just had a big loss, and you know, that's that kind of thing. And then they start to believe in like being on a roll. And they also had these things like people who thought that they were in control of the, the, the outcome were more likely to have problems. And that you can you can spot them because they start doing things like uh, when they're shaking dice before they throw them, they, they shake it for a really long time. Right, right, right. Uh, that kind of thing. So so clearly like rationality breaks down when you get really addicted. I think this is true in video games too. So at some point when you've been playing Diablo for like weeks and weeks, 
you've lost the ability to judge whether you're getting value out of it as well. And you're also making kind of bad decisions. You might even be thinking, I'm not having a good time. Let's play again. Yeah. That's not a rational thing to do. So I, I think that can happen. There is that sort of dark side to video games. I think there's something also about just like uh, variance in brain chemistry between individuals. Yeah. Like, because I, you know, I've read and written stuff about this, and there was this uh, episode of This American Life that, that turned me on to this one fact, which they talked to somebody who had <clears throat> been, I think, on an antidepressant drug, right. and when they started taking it, they just became addicted to game. They had never gambled before they had and it hadn't had any effect on them and they took this drug and now they just like threw their life away going to this casino every fucking day and they went to the doctor and switched them on a different drug and their gambling addiction was gone. You know what I'm like? That's fascinating. That, that means, That's terrifying. Yeah, and, yeah. and I put a link to that in this thing that I wrote recently and, and it's like <clears throat> if you can rebalance the brain chemicals of an individual to determine whether they're going to be compelled by, by gambling or not, then that means that like if you play Diablo 2 for 200 hours and I only play it for 20 hours, and and like that, that I guess all I'm saying is yeah, it, doesn't necessarily, something it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it because you like it at yeah. all. Yeah. You just don't even necessarily have any control over whether you're doing it or whether you like it or not, just based on your fucking genes. Right. So that's that's so yeah, it's, yeah, it's not just genes. Like there's all these different things that make yeah, a person more vulnerable to getting addicted or not. Um, but you know, it, it's it's really tricky because whatever product you make, whether it's a video game or a, a gambling machine or cigarettes or snack foods, right? Yeah. Some proportion of people are going to have a really serious problem with it. Now, for some things, it'll be different, like a different proportion than others. Like, but there, there have been cases of uh, carrot addicts, people who eat carrots in an addictive turn way. Turn orange. Yeah, they turn orange. Uh, uh, water addicts, right? You can get addicted to anything. Yeah. Uh, and so there's kind of a question, you know, if you know that some proportion of people are sort of vulnerable to this and are going to get addicted no matter what, what are your responsibilities as a video game designer? Do you, do you need to make your game less addictive? Do you need to make it less abusive? I mean, well, John Blow talks about that kind of stuff. Well, he believes really strongly in that, but it's sort of easy for him because he's, he's sort of involved in making a particular kind of game. Now, if you're making like an action game, it's like a lot of what people want out of it is this particular addictive uh, quality. Now. Does he think that we should throw away all action games? I don't think so, right? So, but can you make an action game that's rewarding but not addictive? I don't think so. I think that I think those things go hand in hand, uh, and it's 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 actually like the the pleasure and the reward you get out of a video game that makes it addictive. That's what yeah. makes anything addictive. Because there is a spectrum, right? Because yeah. like I've thought about there's this there's this kind of phenomenon, and it, it it applies to slot machines, but also applies to like watching basketball or playing first person shooter, whatever. They like in a lot a ton of games, there's this concept that I, I don't, there's probably an actual real word for it, but I refer to it as like hang time, right. where it's like between the time that the player releases the basketball and it either goes through the hoop or not, there's just this big question mark, right? right? And like between pulling the arm and seeing what the result is on a slot machine, like all, between pulling the trigger in an FPS and seeing whether you hit the guy or not, yeah, like yeah. you're just testing the world and seeing like, what's the result, what's the result possibly. Right. And I think that that central experience, yeah is a big part of, of addiction. You know, it's like, really, it's I want to find out that thing again and again and how resistant you are to like needing to it's, do it's, that. It's really, it's really cool that you said that because I was talking to these researchers at Oxford who have like people gambling, like problem gamblers in, in uh, brain scanning devices. And you can see when their brain is like reacting to a kind of pleasurable stimulus. And it, to begin with, when someone starts gambling, it's like they get a pleasure from a win, right? Just like you'd expect. Mm -hmm. But after they start to develop a, a habit, 
they get a pleasurable, rewarding stimulus, not when they win. It, it shifts over to when the wheels are spinning. So it's exactly what you say. It's that hang time moment. That's the kind of compulsive thing. So your, your intuition is right on the money. That's been uh, upheld in brain scan experiments now. Oh, this has been a really fascinating talk. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Thanks, a lot. Thanks for taking your time. That's no, awesome. um, also, I really want to put a quick end note on this. Um, last night there was a this wacky party event GDC thing, and and um, this 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 may not be new, but it was the first time I had encountered um, one of Bennett's games, Pole Riders. Uh, I don't know when it, when did it come out? When did it it's a few months ago now. A few, yeah. yeah, so I'm behind the curve on that. But it's it's an incredible, hilarious game. It's almost if you've played Nidhogg or if you've heard people talk about Nidhogg, it almost sort of evokes that, but through the lens of the guy who made Quop. Um, <laughs> you, it's, it's, you can play it on Flotty.net, right? Right. So you should, I don't even need to go into it because you can play it for free anyway. So it's a competitive game and it's incredible. So please go play that. Um, yeah, it's like dumb, juvenile Nidhogg. <laughs> That's the idea. But, 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 it, but like Nidhogg, it, there's, despite the very simple mechanics, there's an incredible amount of nuance and clearly the ability to uh, become an expert at it. Um, Plus, unlike Nidhogg, it's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nidhogg has been perpetually coming soon for, what, like a year, two years now? That's right. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> this, this guy, this is better. So, um, uh, thanks again. Thank this you. Been it's, awesome. been, it's been fantastic talking to you guys. What is, I mean, this thing isn't a conf, a conf grenade. It isn't quite a conf grenade. No. It's, I mean, it, is it a blast? Could it be, I would, could it be I a, think conf it'd be blast? a conf blast? Yeah. A conf blast is conf a stupid name. Conf grenade I've, blast? It's the I, blast created by exploding. What is grenade. a blast and what is a <laughs> grenade? There you go. There are either one or two or three or four or five interviews. Or none. Or to be funnier. Or we're back now. Hi there. Hey. Welcome back. Um, you heard our news bumper. <laughs> That's true. We'll be back soon with another progress cast. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Go to the Kickstarter. Okay. Oh. Oh, out of thumbs on that slash Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, we have nine days left. Thank you guys so much. We, were we have fewer of, than nine days nine left. Nine days. It's five days. No days. No, we have some days. Go look. Oh, I want to be the last person to talk.